This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. This BFM budget 2024 special is brought to you by Marsing. Good afternoon. You're listening to Live and Learn with me, Dashran Johan. Last Friday, the Madani government tabled the largest budget ever in Malaysia's history with a total allocation of 393.8 billion ringgit. Now, the question is, does the allocation for housing nudge us closer towards achieving housing for all? Joining me on the show to unpack this is Badrul Hisham. He's the Director of Programs at Iman Research. Welcome to the show, Badrul. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Now, you're someone who believes that housing is a human right. Um, In our various discussions, you have stressed that. So I think it's important to start the discussion here. Why do you think so? Why do you say housing is a human right? They call it the housing theory of everything. Hmm. Basically, the uh, understanding that everything that is related to quality of life, issues like inequality, issues like health, physical, emotional, or mental, things like population growth and development, etc., it all anchors on housing because housing is a basic human need that without one, there was no way anyone could have sort of a dignified and independent life. Uh, it is a very you know crucial element in sort of self-actualization, uh, which without we would not be able to achieve all those things. Right? So based on that, it is you know um, difficult to argue that it is not a right that every person should have. Because without it, then there's no way we can have a life as a human being, basically. And it's really just on that basis that I believe that it is everyone's right to have the house. So with that in mind, what are your overall thoughts on Budget 2024 with regard to housing specifically? Does it nudge us closer towards housing for all or further away from it? Uh, well, if you look at the number, um, there is quite a significant increase in this year's budget compared to last year, especially on the public housing stuff, the PPR side. Uh, last year, the number was around, I think, 367 million, if I'm not mistaken. And this year, uh, the recent uh, speech mentioned uh, for a budget of about like 546 million, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Uh, so if you just look at that, it's quite a significant number. Um, but then, uh, you have to go back to the basic question, which is, you know, first of all, when it comes to housing, budget is not everything, hmm. you know. But <laughs> while we're on the subject, um, then we also need to ask about what other money is going to be spent on. Is it only going to be for the built environment? Is it going to be only for the buildings? Um, and we know that the buildings are important for, you know, uh, and to have a, a basic um, good standard of housing is important for everyone to, to live in. But then there are also issues of livelihood, there are also issues of social relation. And over the years, we see that a lot of money has been spent on housing, either in terms of building new homes, either in terms of uh, subsidies, either in terms of you know uh, assistance, financial assistance to build homes. But then do they actually improve people's lives or not? Um, and especially those conditions that are people having to do with in public housing complex. Uh, and to use an analogy that a lot of people like to use, I don't actually like to use it, but it's a simple way of saying it. Uh, <laughs> we can't just focus on the hardware, we have to look at the software as well. Right, absolutely. And this includes how the houses are being managed, how people's lives are being improved outside of 
you know, just uh, just the building, obviously, outside just the hardware. And another part that we look in, need to look into, which is as important as financing, is the views about housing itself. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to change our view about housing. And this goes back to your question, your first question about housing rights. We need to move away from looking at housing as assets, as commodities, um, which only profit people who are able uh, to use them as assets, meaning right. that they can have extra homes. They have one that they can live on and they can use the one uh, to sell or to rent or, you know, uh, or just to use an asset for a portfolio, for example, to get loans, to get, you know, certain things. Um, but as much as we don't want to stop people from, you know, uh, profiting as in, like, in, a, in an ethical way, but, you know, if it infringes on other people's rights, if people using housing for assets and commodities in a way that would make it difficult for other people who cannot afford it to have good and decent homes, then we should relook into that whole view of housing and our policies should reflect that as well. Absolutely. Um, when you look at this year's budget as a whole, how do you think it compares to previous previous budgets? And the reason I ask, because this is the first um, sort of Anwar Ibrahim budget. I know we had the last one, which was, but even the last one was a sort of revision of the one that Ismail Sabri tabled and then the Anwar Ibrahim government um, retabled it again after the elections. Um, but this is the first one where they have essentially full control um, and direction over the budget. How do you think it compares to previous budget? Do you think it's more or less status quo? Or are we trying, you know, a, a co- sort of taking a radically different approach to budgeting for housing? I don't see a radical approach. What I see is a commitment by the mm-hmm. government to do whatever they can within their current capacity, uh, you know, to at least put financial commitment to building housing and more housing for public housing and affordable housing as well. Um, but in terms of the approach, it is yet to see whether uh, we are taking a different approach rather than continuing what programs that we have done before. Um, and for example, the announcement of you know building new PPRs and all that. Of course, we sort of you know welcome these new commitments. But are we are we taking time to actually really look into uh, what we've been doing for the past how many years? Um, are we looking into a new kind of housing policy? Are we looking into a new kind of urban development policy where it's housing is very much, you know, you cannot separate between urban development and housing development. You know, they, they should work in tandem and they should, you know, complement each other. Um, so I don't know yet whether we're going to have a radical approach. The only thing about the budget is just we're talking about how much money is being put, right? We haven't really discussed on how the details and, and what policies are going to come out of it. Um, so Maybe it's still too early. Uh, I don't really uh, hear any, you know, uh, really, really radical kind of discussion about how we're going to change our policies about housing, how we're going to change our view about housing. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know yet. Right. Um, earlier, you brought up PPR. Um, so 
basically there is 2.47 billion ringgit allocated for public housing projects PPRs in 2024 out of which um, like you mentioned 440 uh, 546 million ringgit is allocated to sustain um, 36 PPRs there are 15 more PPRs targeted for completion in the coming year which is said to be- will benefit 5100 residents now um, like you just mentioned um, one thing this budget seems to be taking in terms of housing is at least commitment. Um, they're putting the finances to to fund whatever policies that they have. Um, again, I have to ask the bigger picture question as well. Do we build enough public housing in Malaysia? Uh, well, in terms of public housing, we, we do have quite a diverse types of public housing hmm. over the years, not just PPR. Mm-hmm. And PPR is just a portion of the bigger ecosystem of public housing that we have. We have Penjawat Awam kind of public housing. We have the state-led public housing programs that is not from the federal government. Uh, and we kind of have public housing that is uh, sort of private uh, initiative where you, you see private entities um, build their own homes or they took over homes and then rented in very much uh, lower price for the B40s. Right. Uh, so in terms of number, looking at PPR itself would not give a bigger picture of whether we have enough public housing or not. Um, but then, the question goes back to the idea of how are we viewing this public housing? Hmm. Are we only viewing public housing for people who really cannot afford it, the B40 or even the B20? For them to stay there for a while, and then once they supposedly, you know, move up the social ladder, they move out. Or are we actually looking at housing as public goods that everybody should have a right to it? Mm-hmm. And this is where the question of whether we're building enough uh, can be answered. We have to first uh, have a stance on how we're viewing public housing. I kind of have an idea of how Malaysia as a country has viewed public housing looking at our, you know, our history and you know, the current policies that we have, uh, which is, it is an aid program. Uh, so it's not right. a, a, a holistic of you know, providing housing for everyone kind of program. Mm-hmm. It's an aid program for people who cannot afford it. Once you move out of that bracket, bracket you, should be able to, you should get your own house, you should you know, spend your entire generation, your life being in debt <laughs> to, to buy these homes. Um, so I think this is a more important question that we need to uh, have as a, as, as, as a society. How are we going to look into the future when it comes to the issue of housing? Are we still going to continue with this sort of band aid program that's providing enough for the current time without even thinking about you know, whether they're going to have enough in the future or not? Or we actually really look into the entire ecosystem and have a sort of radical approach, which... If you ask me as a person, I would ask the latter. I would you know, choose the latter, of course. But it requires a lot of conversations on both sides. And, you know, just jumping off your point, um, when we talk about a radical um, look at housing, um, at least radically different from Malaysia, um, even Singapore, we don't have to go very far. Um, even Singapore is a country with a ra- radically different um, philosophy of housing compared to Malaysia because in Singapore, 80% of the population essentially live in what their versions of PPRs are, which is the HDB flats, mm-hmm. their public housing provided by the government, right? Um, and 
and and in Malaysia, like you mentioned, um, this this idea of how we look at PPR is that this is where poor people live, right? But that is not the Singapore approach to public housing. Everybody, unless you are really ultra wealthy, like to really, really to the max, then you go and buy a public condo or a landed property and, and things like that, right? Otherwise, a general middle-class Singaporean, um, even those who earn 10,000 Singapore dollars and, and things like that, many of them live in public housing. Um, what is the? What do you think Singapore has done right in that regard? Um, what do you think is... Um, what can we learn from that kind of approach to housing? Well, Singapore itself or themselves have gone through some kind of a evolution of their own housing uh, structure and housing ecosystem. But mm-hmm. uh, if you look at how it started, it really did start in a way, uh, sort of a quick pro quo kind of program. Mm-hmm. Singapore was a new country. It needed uh, its population to be uh, secure living in the country, not you know, uh, not moving elsewhere and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it created this program where, uh, in in exchange for a Singaporean to sort of um, give their allegiance to the country, uh, quote unquote, uh, the government takes ownership in the housing and makes sure that everybody has their own homes to live in. Mm-hmm which has resulted, as you said, in right now we have about 80% of Singaporeans live in public housing. So in that sense, it's a really interesting start that led to a quite a successful program of making sure that everybody has a home. Um, of course, now they're also having to deal with the global market. There right. are certain changes that's been going on, which people are sort of debating this kind of uh, ecosystem in Singapore itself. But at least for now, we do have a huge number of population in Singapore who rely on uh, uh, the government to provide them homes which is affordable, which is um, decent. Uh, it, it, it fulfills all the basic requirement that a person would need to, to fulfill themselves. Um, and that is definitely something that we can learn from. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't have to, you know, of course, every, every country, every city have their own pros and cons, but we can always learn the pros and try to adopt it here. There's no... When you learn from something, it doesn't mean you have to take everything. You learn the good things. And, you know, the Malay have a saying, Wang yang kru, ambil yang You can always do that in right. any kind of um, programs that are already existing on that. Um, and if you if you look at a little bit of our own history, we kind of went through a sort of a success period also because we, 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 we were in a period where we had a lot of people living in slums and squatter settlements. And we were able to actually provide them with formal housing. And this is a great feat that a lot of countries are still struggling. And if you look at the population of uh, slum dwellers or informal settlement in the country, it's it's almost zero. I mean, it's it's really, really little compared to a lot of uh, developing countries or, or highly urbanized cities are dealing with. So in that sense, we have done something that is successful mm-hmm. but what we need to talk about now is how do we sustain this success how do we making sure that people who move into this form of housing continue to have homes that are decent to live in and this is where we are dealing with a little bit of shortcomings and what's important for us now is not just to give money to build more of this housing but to make sure that they are not going to go through the kind of mistakes that some of our public homes or public housing have 
uh, had to deal with. Everybody remember the Berkeley Lake Flats mm-hmm. and how it sort of was successful in housing the urban migrants at the time in the 60s. But by the 90s, it became ghetto, basically. And by the early 2000s, it was demolished. So we know that could happen in any of the public housing complex that we have now. So the question now is, how do we make sure that no, no, none other uh, had to go through what public, what particularly make flats had to go through? Absolutely. All right, let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Badrol Hisham. He's the Director of Programs at Iman Research. We continue this discussion after these messages. Keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Stay tuned to BFM's Budget 2024 special, brought to you by Marsing. This BFM Budget 2024 special is brought to you by Marsing. Welcome back to Live and Learn. I'm Dashan Johan and on the show with me today is Badrul Hisham. He's the Director of Programs at Iman Research. And we're unpacking the Budget 2024 allocation on housing. So, um, Badrul, I want to pick off where you left off before the break on the philosophy of housing. Um, What is the sort of um, impact or benefit um, if we create a, a system... Um, where public housing isn't just built with the B40 in mind or as a sort of transition home, but public housing is built with the middle class masses in mind. Um, what would be the benefit of this kind of um, shift in philosophy? The most direct benefit is that then everybody has a right to decent home. Nobody has to struggle and nobody has to beg and lower themselves to make sure that they are being given a house and they have no control over So this is a very huge shift. You talk about uh, having a society that are uh, sort of confident, that can fulfill themselves, their self-actualization, that are able to pursue things that they want to pursue in life. This is the most important thing to have. Not the only thing, of course, but it is one of the most important things to have. And that shift itself would change the entire society. Imagine if you have no worry about uh, where you're going to sleep next month, the kind of things that you can think about, the kind of uh, innovation that you can imagine, the kind of activity that you can uh, focus on other than making sure that next month you still have a house. So it would change from a country that is trying to sort of uh, struggle to catch up with the developed country to feeling that we are on par with everybody else and that we don't need uh, aids to make sure that we uh, can survive the next couple of months. So speaking of, um, you know, this government, some of the allocations um, in this budget 2024, we've got 385 million allocated for the construction of 14 affordable housing projects um, involving 3,500 housing units. Um, Program Ruma Masra Rayat. Again, um, is this sufficient in your eyes, Badrul? Uh, it's difficult for me to say whether it's sufficient mm-hmm. or not right now because Again, it's easy. It's not of course. I mean, it's not easy to just allocate a lot of money for something. It's that itself took me a lot of a lot of work. Uh, but then there's just one part of the puzzle. Right. It's about how we allocating it. How we making sure that whatever has been built and sustained for generations, not just one gener- one one you know family or one couple. You know. Uh, so these are 
question is as important as how much money that we're going to put on it. And without this question, then we can never, without the answers to these questions, then we can really never tell whether what we are doing is good enough or not. So, another aspect I think um, often perhaps not focused too much is we have the tendency, right, to announce all these big projects, big allocations, everything is huge, but it's the follow-through that often um, feels lacking. So when we often we talk about building new housing, how important is maintenance, right? Especially when we talk about, you know, um, public housing, um, you know, the low-cost public housing, for example, PPR, so on and so forth. How important is maintenance? Because, you know, 100 million ringgit was allocated for the maintenance of low and medium-cost stratified public and private housing nationwide. Um, this is for, you know, the repair of water tanks, roofs, cable systems, the installations of CCTV cameras. Um, so many things here um, in the maintenance um, sort of budget. Um, how important is maintenance when it comes to, um, you know, looking at this whole idea of housing? The short answer is maintenance is extremely important. <laughs> and when we engage and we go to public housing complexes, when we talk to the people, the residents know that, um, the most common grievances is how facilities and um, utilities in, in those complexes are sort of run down. You know, lifts not working, railings are uh, eroding, uh, you have um, children playground that is unkept, uh, you have a drainage system that is not working, you have waste management system that is not working, you see waste everywhere, you know, so this whole idea, this whole thing about uh, how to make sure that the housing complexes continue to be livable is extremely, extremely important. And every year, a lot of money is being spent on this already. It's not that we never spent money on maintenance. Mm. As, if you ask uh, building management, as DBK, or you talk to the state government, they all would be talking about the same thing. A lot of money has already been spent in maintenance of public housing complexes. Then that leads to a few other questions. First, whether the money is being spent is enough or not. And whether the money is being spent, are they being spent effectively or not? And on top of that, when it comes to maintenance, it's not just how much money you're spending. Hmm. It's also about the accountability structure of the management. Right. whether the management system and the management structure is effective or not, whether they are actually uh, solving issues that the residents are dealing with on a timely basis. Or not. And from my observation, there is kind of a clear disconnect between the management and residents. Hmm. And this disconnect comes from a lot of things. First, the accountability structure, who are the management responsible to. Do they have to answer the resident or do they have to answer people above them? Third-party management companies, do they answer to uh, people who hire them or do they answer to the resident or the people that live in the place that they're supposed to take care of? Right. And then there's the issue of legitimacy. Why? I mean, we have rules and regulations in public housing complexes. Are they being followed? If they're not being followed, why are they being followed? Issues about vandalism, unruly behavior, unruly practices, why are these keep occurring? Is it because behavior? Is it because of attitude? Or there are bigger questions that we need to ask. Right. Whether uh, people 
see that the management and the uh, and the authorities as someone that they have to actually answer to, or do they see them as nuisance that they don't want to deal with, and vice versa as well. So this whole management system needs to be looked into as well because without a good management system, how are you going to maintain these complexes? And this is require a lot of involvement, not just from uh, the management, not just from the authority, but also from the residents. It needs to be ground up, mm-hmm. cannot be just top bottom. So, so instead of looking just about how housing are being financed, we also need to learn from other cities and how the housing are being managed, how uh, conflict are being resolved within community, right. how are conflict being resolved between community and management who are the go-to person, who are the people that can sort of, uh, you know, be used as, uh, you know, the go-to person to help resolve issue between uh, residents as a mediator. These are a lot of things that we need to look into. And this is part of the software right, that absolutely. I was talking about earlier. We need to invest on this too, not just on the building. Yeah, absolutely. It's all these little things that, that you know, end up making a huge impact on people's lives. Um, so, Badrol, another um, interesting um, sort of approach is this um, constant engagement over the years with um, organizations like Think City. So, in this year's budget, um, I mean, in the 2024 budget, um, 20 million ringgit was allocated to Think City um, to rejuvenate and revitalize downtown Kuala Lumpur to become a creative capital. Now, how important are programs such as this, you know, this this engagement with Think City, um, programs that aim to create more, um, quote-unquote, creative cities, um, uh, and how, or more, you know, even cities where, you know, we have seen um, Think City projects in the past, they have a lot of murals on, on the walls, um, they, they, made, they make the cities look more vibrant, um, you know, and, and various other things, right? Even when it comes to, let's say, um, can, how um, walkable a city is and, and all sorts of um, programs. Um, how important is to think about programs like these? How, how do you um, think about programs like these? Uh, well, I'm a strong believer of if you want to make a city for everyone, then you have to get everyone involved. Mm. And uh, by that principle, I'm... I, I'm always a proponent of any kind of involvement uh, of government organizations, of community organizations, or even individuals who who want to do more than um, what they've already been doing to get involved in a lot of things to make sure that the city can be more open to everyone. Um, so this idea of um, no one has 100% ownership of the city. Right. Everybody has it. Not one person has it. Everybody should have it. And the idea of opening up uh, to have platforms where everybody can get involved uh, and everybody knows their own strength and everybody knows what kind of thing that they can contribute and what other things that other people contribute. This is a very healthy uh, approach that I think should be continued, should be expanded, should be strengthened. And uh, I would say not just think city, Every other organization who wants to do this should be welcome as well. Um, with the idea that you are making the city for everyone, including people who are vulnerable, including people who don't really have a say uh, politically, economically, and socially. Um, 
So either you're making a creative district, either you're making uh, housing for everyone, with this idea in mind that you are opening the city to everyone and not just making it benefit only a few people. Uh, so in principle, I would say it's good. Uh, I would say let's continue doing this and even expand it and strengthen uh, whatever existing programs that you already have. So another thing in the budget which could potentially be important, I'd like to pick your brain on, is that um, the government said to facilitate the redevelopment of the strata system, um, the threshold for residents' consent to sales within a block will be lowered from 100% to a uniform level following the model of international practices such as in Singapore. Could you unpack this for me? It sounds like a lot of technical terms. Um, what exactly does this mean? Uh, so the, <laughs> to try to put it in, a, in the easiest way possible, uh, the unlock sale is basically the idea of the ability to sell an entire lot of um, either a building, mostly most of the time a building or a plot of land that has a lot of owners on it, mm. but to sell it as a whole complex rather than individual units selling it one by one. Right. So in a nutshell, that's unblocked sale. So an entire building, for example, I say you have a 10-story uh, office building with 400 units in it, for example. So instead of selling one by one, where everyone would have uh, each unit owned by individual person, not just not one entity owning the entire building. So instead of each owner selling it one by one, they get together uh, and sell it as a whole, where everybody gets sort of the same kind of price dependent on, of course, the size of the unit that they have and all that. Uh, but they sell it to a single buyer. Right. And this is basically idea of unlock sale. And normally it's always the buyer who approach the, 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 the seller first because you need to have a buyer who you know be able to sort of you know, buy the whole block. Financial capacity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and right now uh, the whole, uh, so basically for, for a person to buy the entire block, they need to get consent of all the owners of each individual unit in that block. And in Malaysia, I know the law says that you need to get 100% um, consent right. uh, from all the owners. Yeah. And this idea of lowering, following Singapore specifically, because that's the only country that's sort of singled out in that speech, uh, Singapore lowered it down to uh, 80% of buildings that are older than 10 years old, if I'm not mistaken, mm. and 90% buildings were less that are less than 10 years old. Meaning, you only need to get consent of 80% of individual owners, then you can already buy the whole lot. Right, right. Yeah. So could this, um, how, how do you see it as a sort of approach? It To me, it seems like you are removing some rights from individual household owners um, you know, who may want to stay, you know, in that place forever and ever or whatever it may be. Um, you know, it may come to a point where um, the government might want to sell the building or something like that, where individual owners might say, no, this is my home. I want to stay here, you know. And, and now you are saying you don't need every single person to agree. You need 80% of the residents to agree and then you can go for it. 
Um, but uh, is there a, a, a side to this that I am not seeing perhaps? Um, what benefit could come from this? There are a lot of perceived benefits. Okay. <laughs> uh, but then the benefits, well, first of all, from the government and from property developer side, it is uh, an opportunity that they will always want to get because right. then uh, it's easy for you to get investors if you know that you can get an entire lot rather than small units mm-hmm. within the city. Uh, it's where... Uh, government can easily make money out of the purchase of uh, land and all that. And usually it's always prime land that are targeted. Uh, and the individual owner also sometimes think that this is also a good way of them to be able to um, benefit uh, financially from this also. Because a lot of times what is being offered uh, is not a small amount. And um, when you, the idea is when you deal with big corporations, it's easier for you to be uh, able to sell your property rather than hoping for one rich person to buy your lot. Uh, you know, so the idea that everybody will benefit from it, the entire you know, you know, uh, list of people will benefit from it. But again, that is more of what we perceive what might happen rather than what actually happens. First of all, it's always going to be a long process. Hmm. Nobody's going to come up and agree on a price immediately. And we're not just talking about residents. Also, the buyer themselves, they will do as best as they can to lower and lower and lower the price. This has been the talk about Kampung Baru for as long as I can remember. Hmm. And even until now, they couldn't be able to get that. And even to get an 80% <laughs> uh, you know, agreement is already going to be very difficult. Right. So it's a long process that the individual owner might not be able to see the end of it. Hmm. Uh, so that's one. Second, um, it's it's a way to, it, I mean, it's open. It's a situation where you can have community fight with each other. Right. Because it's basically, it's a divide and conquer game. Right. It's a divide and go game you would try to divide the community to make sure that people who don't agree with it fight with the people who agree with it and you take the side, you take the side of the people who agree with it. You know, I mean, it, it, it can ruin community. It will intensify the politics of the of the community. Exactly. Right. exactly. And imagine if the idea comes tomorrow and the community starts to fight mm. and that is not going to be resolved 20 to 30 years' time. Imagine 30 years of living with your neighbours with that kind of it's not good. Right. And, and then, of course, what kind of deal that you get? You know, sometimes the money sounds good, sounds high, but then uh, are you going to get it immediately? You're going to be asked to move immediately, <laughs> or almost with the timeline, of course. But then, do you, would you be able to find a property to live in within that time? Will you be able to find anything? Because they always target prime land and they always target people with low income mm-hmm. who live in low, uh, you know, the low income community who live in sort of dilapidated building. This idea of rejuvenating the city, this idea right. of reviving the city, is always from an aesthetic point of view. It's never really from the community point of view. It's all about how much money can use for milk. <laughs> so uh, then, like I said, you deal with the situation where you have this amount of money, 
are you going to be able to find a house that is within that same price range if you work in the area within that same neighborhood? And when can you find it? And if you have to leave before you find a house, where are you going to stay? So there are a lot of ugly things uh, that can happen with this seemingly innocent idea of saying that we're going to revive the city to make it more right. uh, you know, beautiful, to make it more attractive. And all that. But then who are the ones who have to deal with the ugliness? Absolutely. And that's the question that we always have to put on whatever transaction that happens. Absolutely. I think that's very well said, Badrul. Before we wrap this conversation up, would you have a final message for us with regard to Budget 2024 and housing? Well, my final say is, of course, let's fight for housing for all. Let's fight for uh, right to housing. And I hope that more agencies and individuals and organizations jump into this uh, cause and uh, push for it. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. That was Badrol Hisham. He's the Director of Programs at Iman Research. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. This BFM Budget 2024 special was brought to you by Marsing. Reinvent spaces, enhance life. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.